your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We are picking back up in the book of Revelation this week, Revelation chapter 18. We are cruising towards the end of this book. The goal is that we're going to finish this book before uh, my family and I leave for sabbatical in May, and so we are uh, going to walk through the rest of this. We'll be in something else for Easter next Sunday, but other than that, we'll be in the book of Revelation uh, basically until then. So, But today is Palm Sunday, right? Palm Sunday when we celebrate the reality of Jesus uh, and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, and I think about this scene when Jesus is entering into Jerusalem and Uh, You know, we don't have evidence of this in the Gospels, but I wonder, just from what we know of the disciples, if the disciples felt a little caught off guard when Jesus entered into Jerusalem and the crowds gathered together to praise him and lay palm branches down as he uh, entered in on a donkey. And I wonder if the disciples, like they had done in other places, thought, man, we should have capitalized on this. Man, had we known that this was coming, we could have made t-shirts or or tunics at least. We could have had somebody on a camera. I mean, this would have went viral on TikTok. I mean, come on. Like, Jesus, why didn't you capitalize on this moment? You know, like, I mean, we should have at least set up a donation box. We We probably could have put one on the donkey had we been thinking. And people could have thrown money in. Like, we could have done some good with this. Why didn't we capitalize off of this? Well, in in the Gospel of Matthew, do you know where Jesus goes immediately after the triumphal entry? In the Gospel of Matthew, he goes straight into the temple and overturns the tables of the moneylenders in the temple. See, Jesus, uh, now again, I'm I'm not, we don't have evidence that the disciples were really thinking this, but I'm just thinking probably in this group of disciples, one of them was thinking this at least because of how they interact in other times where Jesus is like, hey, we got to move on. And they're like, no, 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 wait, wait, let's set up shop here. Let's, let, let, let's do this. And so Jesus goes straight into the temple, overturns the tables of the moneylenders. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus take very seriously exploitation and self-serving interest. Jesus takes this very seriously, that he is going to seriously address this by flipping over the tables of those who are making a profit off of selling things in the temple for those who are coming in to give sacrifices. Jesus takes this very seriously. And it really is the focus of this section of Revelation that we're going to talk about this Sunday. And the question for us is, will we follow the self-serving way of Babylon or the self-sacrificial way of Jesus? That's our question this morning. Are we going to follow the self-serving way of Babylon or the self-sacrificial way of Jesus? All right, so Revelation chapter 18. We're going to start with verses 1 through 3. After this, I saw another angel. Now, remember, after this, this phrase, after this I saw, is John recounting the order of the things in which he saw, not necessarily an after this as in this first thing is going to happen and then this thing is going to happen. Remember, not in a chronological sort of order, but this is just simply the way in which he saw these visions. And so, uh, Revelation 17 and 18 really are kind of a hyper-focus on uh, the, the sixth and seventh bowl that we saw at the end of uh, chapter 16, right? It's this hyper-focus on sort of the end in judgment upon Babylon. 
And so really this is the focus of these sections here. Uh, Another angel come down from heaven with great authority and the earth grew bright with his splendor. Uh, There's debate among commentators, but uh, likely, uh, as we saw in other places, when it refers to an angel, uh, and when it refers to an angel that has either a loud voice or bright splendor, that he's actually referring to Jesus, uh, right? That he's seeing Jesus. This is uh, kind of typical language in apocalyptic literature. He gave a mighty shout, Babylon is fallen. That great city is fallen. She has become a home for demons. She is a hideout for every foul spirit, a hideout for every foul vulture and every foul and dreadful animal. For all the nations have fallen because of the wine of her passionate immorality. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her because of her desires for extravagant luxury. The merchants of the world have grown rich. All right, so in these three verses, we see three characters or three groups of folks that are going to be highlighted throughout this section that I want to show you. The first is Babylon itself. Babylon is fallen. And remember, Babylon was uh, personified as a woman in chapter 17, right? And now Babylon is talked about as this city. And so, again, Revelation, John uses a lot of mixed metaphors that sort of overlap each other. So we have Babylon first. The second is the kings of the world. It says that the kings of the world have committed adultery with her. Uh, Remember in 17, uh, Babylon was personified as a prostitute. And uh, the kings of the world committing adultery with her. Remember uh, that in the book of Revelation, adultery uh, or sexual immorality is most commonly seen to be idolatry. That this is really uh, a worship of idols that is uh, vividly displaying this as uh, adultery in terms of uh, talking about its, uh, the, the way in which it is an affront to God in our, uh, in our commitment to him uh, that any worship of anything else is like spiritual adultery. And so the kings of this world have committed adultery with her. And then there's this third category, the merchants. The merchants of the world have grown rich. Now these three characters are going to be the focus in this section in the downfall of Babylon. And so it's going to walk through each of these three characters and look at them a little bit differently. So let's read on. Then I heard another voice calling from heaven, come away from her, my people. Do not take part in her sins or you will be punished with her. For her sins are piled as high as heaven and God remembers her evil deeds. Do to her as she has done to others, double her penalty for all her evil deeds. She brewed a cup of terror for others, so brew twice as much for her. She glorified herself and lived in luxury, so match it now with torment and sorrow. She boasted in her heart, I am queen on my throne, I am no helpless widow, and I have no reason to mourn. Therefore these plagues will overtake her in a single day. Death and mourning and famine, she will be completely consumed by fire, for the Lord God who judges her is mighty. Okay, so this comes right here before talking about the destruction of Babylon and it's fallen, uh, it being fallen. There's a warning for the church. The church is called to come away from her, to come away from Babylon. Well, what does this mean, this warning? What does it mean? What does it mean for us who I have said throughout this whole book that we've been talking about that we ourselves live in Babylon? John has made it clear that you are living in Babylon. What does it mean to come away from her? If we are to come away from her, if we live here, 
Well, probably it doesn't mean that we should embrace sort of an Amish view of the world, that we like literally try to create a separate place for us to draw away from the world, complete removal from the way. Uh, from the way of the world. Given the way in which the rest of this book is talked, given the way in which John himself lives, it's probably not that. That's probably not the answer. There's kind of another extreme that I don't think is the answer either. In our day, uh, some of the extreme would be condemning everything in our culture. Just everything about our culture is wicked and bad, condemning it all, so draw away from our culture in that way. And yet, oftentimes, that's not consistently practiced, at least for uh, an Amish view of things, that it's a little bit more consistent. They actually do draw away from the world. Uh, For a lot of folks who just condemn everything that's going on in the world, they also still take from the world by uh, continuing to use the culture for one's own benefit, taking from it, living in it, benefiting economically from it, and yet condemning it all the same time. So it's probably not that either. It's probably a little bit more nuanced than that. And we're going to kind of hit in on what does this mean for us to come away from Babylon, but also to be living in Babylon. That's it's really going to be where we hit a, a little bit later in this. But just remember that as we walk through this section in which Babylon is falling and in which the, the kings of the world and the merchants join in in this, we need to recognize that God is saying to us, in some way, I don't know exactly clear yet, but we'll get there. In some way, you need to come away from Babylon. This has been the warning of the whole book, right? Don't act like Babylon because Babylon is falling. Act like the church. And that's really going to be what John is telling us as we walk through this today. All right, 9 and 10. And the kings of the world who had committed adultery with her and enjoyed her great luxury will, will mourn for her as they see the smoke rising from her charred remains. They will stand at a distance, terrified by her great torment. They will cry out, How terrible, how terrible for you, O Babylon, you great city. In a single moment, God's judgment came on you. So the kings of the world who have committed adultery with her and have enjoyed her luxury will mourn for her. Now, we're going to key in on this mourning phrase here in a moment. Uh, but, but recognize here that it's the kings of the world have enjoyed the things of Babylon and now are standing back and mourning. And we'll ask the question, why are they mourning? Uh, and it'll become a little bit more clear in the next section. The merchants, the merchants of the world will weep and mourn for her, for there is no one left to buy their goods. See, the merchants begin to mourn for her, and it seems clear that the kings were mourning in the same way, not because they love Babylon so much and they're so sad that she has faced judgment and is destroyed. It's because they can't get what they got from Babylon again. You see, the merchants are mourning because no one's left to buy their goods. The kings were mourning because they could no longer enjoy the luxury of Babylon. The kings... And the merchants, they don't care about Babylon. Remember, we saw this last week that Babylon, Babylon is uh, this, this woman personified in, in chapter 17, and she's sitting on this beast. And then what does it say? It says that the beast hates her. 
You see, this relationship that the kings of the world have with Babylon, that the merchants of the world have with Babylon, the relationship that the beast has with Babylon is one of hatred and using. It's a transactional relationship. We simply use one another for the good that we get for ourselves. We don't actually care about each other. This is the way of Babylon. She bought great quantities of gold, silver, jewels, and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, things made of fragrant theine wood, ivory goods, and objects made of expensive wood, and bronze, iron, and marble. She also bought cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, wagons, and bodies. That is human slaves. The fancy things you love so much are gone, they cry. All your luxuries and splendor are gone forever, never to be yours again. The merchants who became wealthy by selling her these things will stand at a distance terrified by her great torment. They will weep and cry out. How terrible, how terrible for that great city. She was clothed in finest purple and scarlet linens, decked out with gold and precious stones and pearls. In a single moment, all the wealth of the city is gone, and all the captains of the merchant ships and their passengers and sailors and crews will stand at a distance. They will cry out as they watch the smoke ascend, and they will say, Where is there another city as great as this? And they will weep and throw dust on their heads to show their grief. And they will cry out, how terrible, how terrible for that great city. The ship owners became wealthy by transporting her great wealth on the seas. In a single moment, it is all gone. They mourn because they can't sell their stuff there anymore. They mourn because Babylon had bought all of their stuff in great quantity. And it was lots and lots of stuff. They mourn because their ultimate goal of serving themselves can no longer be fulfilled in Babylon. Ultimately, all of this interaction between the merchants and the kings and Babylon was a transactional approach to human relationships. You see that humans and goods in this list are the same thing. Right? It's listing all of these things that it sold. Goods, gold, uh, wood, pearls, jewels, cinnamon, spices, all of these things. And then at the very end it just says bodies. That is human slaves. You see, in the world of Babylon, there's no difference between a human slave and a good that you are trading like gold. It's the same thing. It's just a commodity to be traded. Just a commodity to be traded. In Babylon, everything is something to sell or to be sold. Everything can make a profit. Does that sound familiar? Sound a little bit like our empire? Our Babylon? Is there really any difference between that cultural understanding of humanity and the way in which we actually functionally live in the world today? How do we see this in our world today? Well, I mean, we see this in a a whole host of ways. See this in things like predatory lending, the reality of trying to uh, extort from the poor and charge them far more to borrow money than you do the rich. Why? Because you can. We see this in things like human trafficking. Literally, human slaves being used today in the same exact way. Or sweatshops. Exploitation and extortion. 
or the way in which our culture treats those who are materially poor. It's either a problem to be solved or a problem to be ignored rather than people to be loved and cared for and help them to thrive. You see this in the, the insane rise in corporate greed that we see all across our nation. CEO pay in 2021 was 399 times higher than the typical worker. 399 times. In 1965, it was 20 times the individual worker. There's individual greed that goes along with that. Now, here's the deal. Why are we okay with this? Why are we okay with this? Well, because, guys, we get, in that system, we get to buy great stuff for cheap. That's why we're okay with it. We don't question it because we actually benefit from it. It doesn't bother us until we actually see it. And when it does bother us, sometimes the reason it bothers us is not because we're morally outraged at corporate greed. It's because we actually want what they already have. The reason we're really outraged often is because we are like, why not me? Why didn't I get that? I work harder than them. I should get more than them. It's not actually any sort of moral outrage. It's really just more individual greed. We see this in just the consumeristic material approach to life that we all live in. It's Babylon. It's interesting to me that the way in which this text all the way throughout Revelation has been walking through the evils of empire and the evils of Babylon. And here is the hyper-focus of the fallenness of Babylon. And what's it focusing on? Economic wealth. Why? Because that's what allows people to allow empires to do evil and awful things. Because we're getting stuff. And as long as we're getting stuff, we're okay. This is true throughout human history, you could just watch and look and see in places in which uh, empires sought to do this, right? Uh, I, I can't remember the exact quote, but I think it's a Roman emperor that talked about if you just give people bread and sport, they'll let you do whatever you want, right? Just give it to them and they'll let you do whatever you want. It's pretty accurate to how the world works today. We're still in Babylon, still doing this. We're still seeing the way in which employees are treated, in which we care only about the bottom line. All of these things represent the same sort of things that John is calling out in Babylon. And Jesus says, come away from her. Come away from her. Don't treat people this way. We do this as consumers when we care more about getting the product than the people producing it. It's the last time we thought about the people that produce the products that we use. When we care more about getting a deal than buying things in a way that supports just working conditions. This also shows up in the way that we critique things like corporate greed. As, a, as I said, it often shows the fact that we actually just want what they have and we're not critiquing it out of some moral righteous anger. Often, the reality is, now, now all of you are probably thinking like, okay, well, I get that. Oh, yeah, that makes sense, but, but that's not me. 
<laughs> like, I'm, I'm clearly not making that kind of money, right? Like, clearly that's not the situation in which I have. You know, sometimes I think when we read the scriptures and we read accounts like this that are specifically designed to look at the big picture, specifically, right, apocalyptic literature is to push you to the end, to push you to this, like, hey, look at this. This is what it looks like in stark reality. Oftentimes when we read that, we're like, well, that's not us, so we give ourselves a pass. But sometimes our godliness in that is maybe not godliness, but simply lack of opportunity to sin in the same way. This is true in a number of different ways when it comes to our moral character. Sometimes what we call godliness is simply the reality that we haven't had the opportunity to sin like those people have had the opportunity to sin. Have you ever thought about that? Like, what would I do in that situation? Would I actually make a different decision? If everyone's making the same decision in Babylon to kind of do the same thing, why do I think I would be any different? Is my heart really any different? See, the question is, uh, or the, the reality is, what you do on a small scale to treat people as commodities and not in, in image bearers is exactly what you would do on a large scale. It would just be a lot more noticeable. How you treat people who are image bearers, if you treat them like commodities on a small scale, that's what you would do if you were given the opportunity to do it on a larger scale. All that John has said about Babylon, he's keying on one of these key features, like I said, money. Because it seems to be the most seductive thing for us. Jesus speaks about money so much because it's so seductive. John here in Babylon hitting on our money because it so easily entraps our hearts. It so easily draws us to worship. And the challenge with it is it's so necessary for daily life. Right? This is the challenge with money. This is the challenge with Jesus teaching on money. Is it's so necessary for daily life and it so easily entraps our hearts. What are we to do about that? Right? The greatest commandment, Jesus says, is to love God and love neighbor. Well, what we do with our money will display what we love and worship, and whether that's God and something else, and it will show whether we love our neighbor or use our neighbor for our own selfish benefit. It's what money is going to show for us. Where does all this, for Babylon, where does all this self-serving interest lead? Well, ultimately, it leads to self-serving destruction. Babylon is judged for the way in which she has served herself. Rejoice over her fate, O heaven and people of God and apostles and prophets, for at last God has judged her for your sakes. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a huge millstone. He threw it into the ocean and shouted just like this, the great city Babylon will be thrown down with violence and will never be found again. Now, what is the violence that it's talking about here? I don't know that this is necessarily the violence of, uh, certainly not throughout the book of Revelation, it has shown that violence is not God's people rising up in violence. That's never the position. Jesus never shows up with God's people to execute violence and to say God's people should execute violence. Right? We're going to see in 19, Jesus is going to show up on a white horse. This is like the victory lap for Jesus. And he's got a sword. You know where the sword's coming from? From his mouth. It's not in his hand. This violence is likely the violence of self-destruction. 
The beast hates Babylon. Babylon hates the beast. The merchants of the world and the kings of the world mourn for the beast. Mourn for the destruction of Babylon. The reality is that Babylon and the evil she represents has within it its own self-destruction. Evil always carries with it its own self-destruction. That it will implode upon itself. And this is actually, if you look just throughout human history, this is what happens with every empire. They sort of eat themselves alive, right? That within self-interest, we always end up consuming one another. This is the way of Babylon. It's the consuming of one another. The sound of harps, singers, flutes, and trumpets will never be heard in you again. No craftsmen and no trades will ever be found in you again. The sound of the mill will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The happy voices of brides and grooms will never be heard in you again. For your merchants were the greatest in the world, and you deceived the nations with your sorceries. In your streets flowed the blood of the prophets and of God's holy people, and the blood of people slaughtered all over the world. Judgment comes upon Babylon. All of this self-serving will consume itself. The evil of Babylon contains its own demise. This is the way of Babylon. And it looks so tempting until it falls. Right? Remember how uh, Babylon was described in 17, right? This beautiful woman with uh, scarlet and pearls and gold, right? What did the merchants say she looked like? Again, describe those exact same things. You know what the merchants left off in their description in Revelation 18? She's got this horrible name on her forehead and she's got a cup full of obscenities, right? Like it, it leaves that part out, right? It's like, uh, no, no, but look at how beautiful she was. Right? The reason that we follow Babylon so much is because until it falls, it looks so good. They enjoyed the luxury of Babylon. They enjoyed all the things that she had to offer. Not recognizing that it was consuming itself. Hating itself. Hating one another. Self-serving destruction. What we need to come away from Babylon is a better picture. We need a better picture, one of self-sacrificing deliverance. Self-sacrificing deliverance. We don't see it here in this text, but we know from uh, the rest of the book of Revelation, and anytime that John is telling us not to be like Babylon, he wants us to be like the church, to follow the lamb wherever he goes. Where does the lamb go? Learn this in the book of Philippians. Paul says, Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from His love? Any fellowship together with the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. This right here is the counterintuitive work of the kingdom. Babylon takes interest in itself. Take what you can from Babylon while you can, and hopefully you're not around when it falls. That's the approach. 
And what Jesus says is, no, think about the interests of others first. Not just your own interest. Think about how this affects other people. Think about what this does for other image bearers made by God who are stamped with his divine image. Think about what this means for your brothers and sisters in Christ. How can you be a people that care for one another in the midst of a world that doesn't care? This was the secret of the early church that caused its explosive growth is the way in which the church cared for each other. There was nothing like this in the ancient world. There was no one that would care for each other and then beyond that care for those outside of their own. Right? One of the first, after Constantine converts to Christianity and there's a series of emperors, uh, there's another emperor who tries to return the Roman Empire to paganism. His name's Julian the Apostate. That's his name from history. Not a great name. Just, you know, if you're a bad character in history, your legacy is just a bad name. Julian the Apostate. But one of the things Julian said is he was writing with another uh, leader and he said, these Christians, they take care of their own poor and ours also. They shame us. Look at what good they do. How do, we, how do we compete with this? How do we return people to paganism when the Christians take care of their own poor and also all those around them who aren't even theirs? Why do they care about other people? Why does the kingdom teach us to care not about only our own interests, but also the interests of others? It says, have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Whoops, went ahead. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus will be exalted. We're going to see this in in a few weeks as we get back to Revelation after Easter We're going to look at Jesus' resurrection on Easter, and then we're going to come back to Revelation 19, and we're going to see the glorified Jesus show up. This Jesus show up in all glory and splendor. The Jesus that will cause all knees to bow before him. He will be exalted. But the way in which he's exalted is by humbling himself first. He humbled himself. He gave up the glory of heaven, the glory of relationship, of, of presence with God the Father, the glory of his divine privileges to become human. The creator of the universe, who knows all things, became an infant who had to learn. He humbled himself. And not only did he humble himself in coming and taking on human flesh, he then lived a life of suffering, culminating in his death on the cross. The thing that we're going to celebrate this week during Holy Week. Jesus took his self-sacrifice to the cross to deliver you from self-interested, self-serving destruction. 
His self-sacrifice on the cross is to deliver us from the self-serving destruction that we are headed for in Babylon. To deliver us from our sins. He paid the penalty for sins that were not His. They were not His sins. They were yours and mine. All the sins of God's people throughout all of the ages placed upon Jesus. And He suffered there not for Himself or for His own sins, but for yours, so that you would be delivered from sin and Satan, your greatest enemies, and death itself. He sacrificed everything to deliver you. And what Paul says is, first, first and foremost, we got to worship Jesus because of that. Right? Every knee is going to bow before Him. Let us willingly bow before Him and worship Jesus. Because he is good. And then Paul says, let that inform the way you live. Go and live like that. Do not think about your own interests only, but think about the interests of others. Don't be selfish. Be humble and give towards others. Don't look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Given the way in which this chapter Right, there's a ton of ways in which we can identify what does it mean to not be selfish and to live for others. But given the way this chapter focuses uh, on the economics of Babylon, it seems right to focus on the economics of the kingdom. What does it look like for us to not look out for our own interests, but also for the interests of others? Well, certainly I think one way in which we can apply this is giving, tithing. Right? Like not just giving a little, but like actually self-sacrificing, giving 10%, right? Like, am I willing to actually do that, right? Like, the average giving in America is not 10% among Christians, right? It's not, it's not, not very good. The last time I looked at it, I haven't looked at recent numbers, but it was like 2.5%. 2.5%. That's like barely enough to function in the kingdom, let alone do all the things that we want to do in the kingdom, in the world, in serving the poor. Here's the problem. What we often do here in America as Christians is we think that someone ought to take care of the poor and it ought not to be us, right? Some are saying that policies is the way we should take care of the poor. I actually think it's a pretty good mix of both. It's probably healthy, but policies should take care of the poor. But we also don't want to pay more in taxes. Others are like, no, 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 the government shouldn't take care of the poor. The church should but we also give 2.5%. The reality is we just don't want to take care of the poor. We want to take care of ourselves and not anyone else. The reality is we cannot expect to look like the church and be subversive in the world in Babylon and actually grow in Christ and see the gospel expand when we take the economics of Babylon and apply it straight to us. If we're not willing to challenge that, if we're not willing to live differently from that, why do we expect that our churches should look differently than Babylon? Jesus says, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Our treasure is largely in Babylon. You know where our heart is? Largely in Babylon. It's just the reality. It's where we are. And we do this, right? We give like this not because we have to do it in order to earn something from God, right? Oftentimes people are like, ah, pastor's talking about money again. Must want some more stuff. 
No, God will take care of us. It's fine. I know God will take care of us. God is always taking care of us as a church. It has nothing to do with it. It's your hearts that I care about. Jesus says, where your heart is, there your treasure, or where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Right? It's your heart that I care about. How are we to do this? It's not because we have to do it in order to earn God's love. No. It's because what we give to is what we will worship. And we don't want to worship Babylon. God's not a cosmic killjoy just saying like, hey, we don't want you to have any good things. That's, that, God just wants you to be miserable and sad, not have any good things. No, that's not it at all. But he knows that your hearts will so easily get entrapped by the world and miss out on the greatest thing, Jesus himself. So we give as a discipline to teach us that this world is not the end. That one day Babylon's going to fall and Jesus is going to come with the kingdom. And so we give so that we remember that Jesus is coming and Jesus' kingdom is greater than this. And we give because we don't seek our own interests, but also the interests of others. And there are tons of ways in which we can serve this city. Tons of ways in which we can serve the world. We just talked about it on Friday night at our missions dinner, right? There's tons of ways in which we can see the gospel grow throughout the world. And one of the ways in which we do that here is by giving financially to support those things. That's how we do it. Now, it's not just giving. That's not just the only thing. It's also stewarding all the other money that you have. God cares not just about like the little part that you give, but the whole thing, right? He cares about you holy, uh, holistically, meaning if he says give 10% and keep 90, he cares a lot about the 90, guys, because <laughs> that's a lot more than the 10. Stewarding how we use our money. How we, first, we can look at how we earn our money. Do we earn it through oppressive systems? Do we earn it in unjust, ungodly ways? How do we make sure that we're seeking justice in the way that we earn our money? And then what we do with it. Do we support oppressive systems with it? Or do we earn and use our money in a subversive way to support the poor and marginalized? To actually care for one another? And to not just take the way of Babylon, but to be the church. There's a lot of good questions that we can ask ourselves to see if we're doing this, right? Is our giving, is our saving, is our charity, is our justice work, all of that, is that for us? For some sort of selfish gains? For us to feel good about ourselves? Or is it really for others? Not saying that you don't take care of yourself, certainly not. That's not what I'm saying. We have to take care of ourselves. But is what we do with our money often taking care of ourselves? Or is it taking in the luxury of Babylon and not caring about the world around us? The biblical picture is one of the subversive work of the kingdom in this world while not being stained by this world. Leveraging the things of this world not to take from it, but to bless to bless and give to the world, showing them our Savior. Remember, we said, if we're living in Babylon, our example is like Jeremiah, in which the Lord tells the exiles in Babylon through Jeremiah to bless the city. You're going to be here a while. Buy houses, plant gardens, marry, give in marriage. Bless the city. Bless them. 
So often our approach when it comes to the book of Revelation as Christians is to say, well, Babylon's dying anyway, so let's just enjoy what we can while we're here and huddle over here, and then it's all going to burn down and it'll be fine. But we had a lot of fun too, right? That's not the approach that John tells us to take. It's Babylon is going to be destroyed. Babylon is going to fall. Go and bless the city and show them your Savior. Bless them. Use the things of this world to bless them, to show them Jesus, and to draw them to the church. To be a part of drawing them to the church. It's really what Jesus talks about, about us being in the world, but not of the world. It's what Jesus prays for us just before he goes to the cross. My prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me, because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me, so they bring me glory. Now I am departing from, this, from the world. They are staying in this world, but I am coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that not one of was lost except the one headed for destruction, as the scriptures foretold. Now I am coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so that they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they can be made holy by your truth. See, it's the self-sacrificial deliverance of Jesus that causes us to be able to live in the world but not of the world. To stay in the world, to bless the world, to bless and to give and not exploit and to take. Friends, the question for us as a church is what are we known for? What are we known for? What do we advocate for? What are we about? What do the economics of the kingdom look like right here? What will we do? Will we come away from Babylon or will we join her? Will we commodify humans or serve and love them? And the question you may be asking is, but what about us? Because things are hard in the world. Who's going to take care of us? Jesus was just praying. Not just for those he was praying for just then, but to all those who would believe through their witness. It means he was praying for you. That you would be protected by the name of Jesus. That you would be protected by his self-sacrificing love. That you would know that he cares for you and loves you and went to the cross specifically for you. Not just you corporately as a church, that absolutely, but you specifically. The only way we're able to serve in this way, self-sacrificially, is when we know we're actually taken care of. And Jesus says, I got you. I will take care of you. I love you. I will protect you. I will be for you. And even sometimes when we're in the wilderness and it doesn't look like he's taking care of us and it looks like things are really bad, we don't see all that Jesus sees. 
And he's doing a mighty work, and he will accomplish his purposes. And so we can trust, because Jesus went to the cross for us and rose from the dead for us, we can trust that he is for us, that he is good, that he loves us. And if he sacrifices in that way for us, then we can sacrifice for one another in the world. So let's come away from Babylon and let's be the church. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you because we need you. We are not able to do this on our own. We struggle to come away from Babylon. Our hearts are often so entangled with the things of this world. And so, Lord, would you replace those things in our hearts with you, Jesus? That we would love you more than we love anything else so that it would crowd out the things in this world that seek to have a place in our heart with our worship of you. And in that, that you would show us by your Spirit how we should self-sacrifice for your good for your glory and for the good of others in this world. Jesus, would you do a mighty work in us that we would look like the church and not like Babylon and that we would bring you much glory and honor in this city, in this place. Jesus, would you do a mighty work, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.